Thanks for tuning in to Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Today we have with us Richa Srivastava and Vaibhav Chhabra, the duo from Makers Asylum. Makers Asylum is India's first creative community space housing various co-located labs to facilitate prototyping of interdisciplinary ideas. The focus is on fostering innovation through hands-on learning and then providing access to an ecosystem of stakeholders and subject matter experts. They say this is a community of unlike-minded thinkers, artists, and engineers. At the start of the pandemic, Makers Asylum turned into a PPE factory, making a million shields across India in 49 days, calling it the M19 project. I think I don't have a hesitation to say, both with pride and pleasure, that before India Inc. commoditized the shields, it was the sheer infectious power of Makers Asylum which filled the space when it was at its most fragile. Makers Asylum has been covered in several international publications and forums, including Vogue, World Economic Forum, Economist, and Forbes. Richa and Webhav, it is an honor to have you with me today. Welcome to Small Big Wins. Thank you so much Thank for having so much. us. Okay, so I thought of breaking our conversation today in three main parts. First, about design thinking. Second, about Makers Asylum specifically. And third, about sustainability and capitalism. But as you guys say, I think I caught this from your website, individuals can and do make a difference, but it takes a team to really mess up things. So as a team, <laughs> let's see what three of us mess up today. And I hope the concoction is interesting enough. So first question is, why do you love the work you do? Well, I mean, I think for me, I've been working in different spaces over the years and uh, Makers Asylum, of course, is something that I truly find very exciting and something that's very unique and not something that a lot of people, folks, at least in India, are doing. Uh, so it's a very uh, unique space for me in the way that the way its journey is, the decision making is very much independent. It's free thought. We go with the flow. We, do, we are driven by a lot of really crazy ideas. So all of it together sort of makes it a really interesting place to be in. And uh, at work, we get to meet so many different kinds of people, artists, designers, engineers. Like one would not have this kind of uh, access to so many kinds of people sort of coming together in one space and you you have the opportunity of meeting them on a daily basis so i think that's very exciting for me and that makes it very fun for at least me to come to work and be here and just get my creative juices flowing well it's been seven years now since i've been part of makers asylum and i think over the seven years i've realized that there is nothing i would rather be doing than being here so that's a good thing it's been persistent enough since I was a little child, I guess, I've always been into making things and breaking things. I didn't really know how to fix them much before. And I think that's, that's been one of the key driving things behind Makers Asylum, to uh, create a space where we can all build together. Because when you are building stuff or when you're trying to create something, there is only so much that you can do as an individual. Or there's only so much fun you get when you're making things alone at home. But when you're doing it with other people, like-minded people, it's so much more fun. And you can do so much more because everyone's ideas are now put together in the same place, in the same board, and you're able to sort of feed off that energy and really create some exciting things together. And that's what's been the most exciting for me. And I believe that's what gets me to work because it's not about one of us, it's about all of us together, which makes it very exciting. So when you say all these individuals coming together with different thoughts and processes, so one thing which I always have wondered is, that, does every individual have design thinking in him? It doesn't look so on the face of it. I believe that everyone is has design thinking in it. <laughs> 
well, if you think about it, if you think about design thinking as such, I mean, it's a process. It's a very natural process of creation. And we've been doing that as a child, as a little baby or anything, as we've been growing up. I mean, how do you learn new things? The simplest way of learning new things is you go, you understand what the problem is, and then you try something. It doesn't work. You fail. And then you try again. And then you try again and again and again till it finally works. I mean, you've been doing this since a child and that's what design thinking is all about. They just put that into a process or a defined five-step process that says that this is design thinking. But honestly, it's a very natural way of creation or it's a very natural way of learning, I would say, than anything else. So I think every one of us is a design thinker. But then why, why do you think it gets so subverted, so marred? It's not evident enough. Uh, I think, so it's hard to realize that what you're doing. And at the same time, so that's like a lot of things, right? But before you learn how to walk, it feels like walking is hard and it's weird. Then you learn how to walk. Then it's a straightforward process of walking. Same thing with when you learn how to maybe sing or dance or play the guitar. I mean, it's nothing that crazy once you've done it once and then it's straightforward to learn new songs all the time. Similarly, when you think about design thinking, once you've understood the concept once, once you've understood the thought process of how you're able to break down a problem into its little pieces and then take them one step at a time, then you start realizing that that's how you naturally work. And uh, there is nothing that's, that, that is, that's an obvious logical step that you need to take. So for example, if I break down the design thinking process for you, there are five main elements to it. First thing, which is the most important is that you need to empathize with uh, the user. So what does empathy mean? That you need to understand what the user uh, or what the person is doing. It's very easy to say that put yourself in the other person's shoe or all of these things. But I mean, let's not even talk about other people right now. Let's talk about myself. I like to start with that. If, if I'm the user, if I'm the individual who is facing the problem, then I really do understand myself. And for that reason, if I know what the problem is, I can empathize with myself. So that's one way of breaking down the problem and understanding what are the issues that I'm going through. Then the second part of it is a little bit more about problem framing, understanding and defining what the problem statement is. So when you're defining that problem statement, that's pretty much like exactly what I spoke about. So once you've understood what the user is, what the kind of problem he's facing, you need to basically define that into saying that these are the elements of the problem that are being faced. So that's also very straightforward in its way. Then the next thing that you do is ideate as part of the design thinking process, which is coming up with ideas on how you solve this problem. Then after that, you're going to prototyping, then you go into testing and then you repeat. And every part of it is pretty much back and forth. So there's no straight line that you follow. There is never a straight line approach to anything in life. You're always starting with, let's say, the problem. Then you're going into empathizing. Then you're going into testing. But you also repeat or go back and forth multiple times till you finally get to the final solution that works for you. Every time you test doesn't mean that you, by the time you reach to the testing point doesn't mean that's the end of the design thinking process. You come back sometimes into your prototyping or even back to your problem framing or back to your ideas. And that's totally normal. That's how the process works, which is a very natural way of making as well that you try, you succeed, you fail, and then you repeat. So are there, are there any life events or life aspects in your growing up that uh, this happened to you more naturally than a lot others? Yeah, it reminds me of a fun story. When I was growing up, I used to love opening things up and fixing them. My father once reached out to me and he said that, hey, a phone is not working. Can you fix it? So the problem that he was facing was his phone wasn't working. And then I asked him, what's the problem? So he gave me the problem that the screen does not recognize when I'm trying to touch on it or it's just weird. There's some uh, problem over there. So I understood the problem now. I went back to my room. I started thinking about it. Then I realized that, okay, fine. The obvious problem could be the fact that the screen is obviously not aligned. First, I played around with the software, but did not work. So my logical instinct opened up the phone, looked inside, figured it out, 
the screen was a little not straight it was a little tilted fixed it put it back together while putting it back together there was a little cup like thing that was sitting inside the phone i didn't know what that was i thought it was pretty useless so i threw it and i put the phone back and gave it to him he went like oh you solved the problem that i gave you but i'm not getting any signal now do you know what could have gone wrong the little cup like thing was the antenna back to the problem again <laughs> new definition new ideas new ways to solve it putting it back together and then coming up with uh, testing it so it's basically you understand what the problem is you go back into this you try and fix it you go back to the user you test it you realize that oh shit there is a different problem now you go back to the beginning and you repeat if you th- think about it like this i wasn't trying to do any design thinking process over here but this is a simple problem solving thing i was given a problem i was trying to solve it but if you break it down like this then it perfectly fits into the design thinking model as well true i think the way the generation which is coming up and a lot of them uh, who have already come out most of them are in a very mechanical state of mind in a very they look straight so what is causing this why are we not being able to nurture design thinking right since the beginning in families and schools personally i think one of the things is that we're always competing trying to go to a, a goal or trying to go towards whether it be grades or whether it be some sort of a defined system that is play that you're trying to always crack i'll just give you an example one of the reasons why i personally think that the programs that we've been doing over the years are exciting and why more and more universities want to possibly work with us over the years and big universities and that's really crazy for them to work with a small organization like ours sometimes but it's because there is no prize at the end of them and that's very very important if you think about it there's no prize there's no goal there's no marks that you're getting at the end of them there is nothing that you get at the end of it there's not even a proper certificate that you get at the end of it what you're in there is for the journey for the experience for the true learning and the pr- true thinking because most of our programs are working towards the planet and trying to create something that have a larger impact towards things so so if you think about it there is no prize at the end so because there is no sort of little hanging fruit that's sitting and telling us that i need to catch that fruit which we've always been trained to go towards it allows us to think a little bit in different directions and be like okay there is nothing that i'm going to get at the end so might as well uh, try something else right now because i'm in this program and i have all of these people might as well go a different direction and see what happens or try this and see what happens or try that why uh, go in the direction of the fruit because there is no fruit now so people are lost in the program for some time at least and that's good and we tell them that they're going to be lost and we tell them that they're going to get frustrated because that is the natural process of learning you will be lost you will get frustrated and you will get confused but that's a natural process of design thinking and that's a natural process of creating things and if we try to a uh, sort of put that into some sort of a weird box and say that hey no if you do this 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 you will end up getting somewhere it doesn't work like that you need to go through the frustration you need to go through the confusion and you need to be normal and allow the natural things to happen uh, yes if you tell that to parents they tell that you're crazy and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about sorry <laughs> but if you because they want to make sure that the kids do great but honestly what is great so sometimes we working with young talents as well and their parents ask me that hey my kids project do you think it's good enough i mean everyone's talking about ai everyone's talking about this his project isn't it too simple and i'm like guys we work so hard to make his project so simple and that is the beauty of this project because it's so simple that is it aren't you excited about the fact that it's a simple project that he will be able to create himself and learn from i mean that's the most pu- and the fact that he was able to come up with a complex problem break it down and really create a simple solution that works that is beauty right there that's that's design thinking right there that you take a complex problem break it down understand what it is and then come up with a simple solution towards it for the right kind of an audience which is what is the beautiful aspect of i think the process and also learning yeah just to add to webbuff's point i think to your question was you i think in terms of success and definition of success that we all have traditionally it is about sort of going beyond just going and achieving like certain levels of achievement right you 
passed 10th grade with 90%, 95%, passed 12th grade, then you go into engineering, then you go into, okay, fine, you got a great job. And then you go into doing an MBA. We don't have, like, I've, I've gone through that myself very traditionally because my path has been traditional in the way of my academic pursuit and my the way of thought. But I feel that definition of success is something which is defined by our society in a very uh, linear format. So that's the reason why most people and most youngsters these days are confused because now there are options which are beyond, you know, just being an engineer or a doctor or just these very traditional ways of thought that this is the class in society or this is the thing that you do. If you work with your hands, it's sort of looked down upon and, and things like that. But we sort of sort of breaking all of that now in the future. And the young generation has a lot of things that they can do, which is just not traditional metrics of success. So I think now that thought process is sort of coming in into parents and they're looking for ways to providing opportunity to them to think beyond these definitions and lines in, of the society and sort of think beyond and just learn and enjoy the process and be passionate about something and pursue that passion. Because at the end of the day, that's what will matter. Because how much ever money, how much ever achievement, how many ever awards that the society gives you at the end of the day, it's about internal motivation and satisfaction. And that comes only when you are passionate about something or you're following something that is a pursuit of passion. So I think that's what is becoming a little different. It's still very niche, this thought process, but I think hopefully with uh, the work that we are doing and work with a lot of, of our peers are doing, I think it's in the direction of that kind of an achievement, which is more collaborative, co-creative, and not just competitive in nature. Great. So do you guys have some examples where parents have decided that forget traditional school, just be here? We are going to take this up. We are going to take this challenge. Well, we do have a lot of, I don't know if Web of you are going to add something, but I just will say that we do have a lot of community of parents who've been working with us, who are, have been homeschooling their children, have been, have been unschoolers. So these concepts about homeschooling, unschooling is very, very common in a lot of the parents that we work with as well. But we also have the extreme end of the other parents who are, very competitive in nature, want their kids to only go to the Ivy League schools in the world, have all the resources to also support that kind of ambition. But at the same time, while they have all that thought, they also have the ability to think beyond just saying that, okay, fine, this is what we want to achieve, but in an open-ended fashion. So they do come to us in a format where they want their kids to sort of grow and learn more but also have a direction toward competing and going to the best of the universities. And at the same time, we have a lot of parents who from the homeschooling, unschooling community and want only learning and a more sustainable kind of a thought process for their children as well. So it's a mix of both, but I think it's exciting because when we put these children together, it becomes even more interesting, the kind of outcomes that come out of these two different thought processes. But Webov can add to it if you want to Webov. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. There is, uh, we work with very different kind of people with very different kind of mindsets but I think at the end of the day if you allow that design thinking process to shape up and just go with it somehow it manages to work and I must give it to them for that because it's such a natural process that if you allow that time to let it nurture I've seen it work many, many times. And I've seen it in front of my eyes, some really exciting and beautiful projects being created just within Maker's Asylum, we've done over 500 projects. And some of them, over 30 of them have become into companies and startups and things like that. And so if you look at that, all of them have the same sort of thought process that goes into it. I mean, it just seems to work if you just follow it. And it's that straightforward. So a lot of the parents and a lot of the people and a lot of the individuals who come to us as well, even if they're non-believers in the beginning, uh, it takes time and convincing. I think they sort of get it towards the end which is what's important because it's not just a one-time framework or something. It's a lifelong learning. And uh, I think that's very important. Yeah, I, I think I really liked when you said allow design thinking to shape up. And uh, yeah. I was just trying to think that actually it's, it's the play of words, but the asylum is actually not in maker's asylum. It's outside maker's asylum. Maker's asylum is actually trying to do the things the right way now and get it all correct. So everything outside is in, in the regular education world, in the competitive world, in the goal-oriented world is actually taken us towards the asylum. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So my son, he is giving his 12th exams now, but in class six, he started talking to us and saying this, that why don't you homeschool me? And whenever he used to return home and the normal question of how did things go, it was always a very mundane face saying normal. And he, he came up in class seven, he said, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing because I learn from one exam to other and I forget what has happened before. So can't I do something else? Till he found another school in Ahmedabad called Riverside. And, and he decided to go there. And I think one of the things as parents, I personally feel, and my wife too, that we are too protective of our children and we don't let them be independent. And I think these are two things we found that when we took it away from the life of our kids, they started shaping up in a different manner. And of course, it, it was a journey of frustrations, of difficulties for them. But they know that they have the kind of green light or the support from us that they do this. I believe they've started becoming different individuals. So anything about parenthood? That's an interesting topic. Yes, it's hard. I mean, end of the day, you are guiding and you have a responsibility towards another soul on the planet. And you want to make sure that that soul really does things better than you have. So I won't say that I can relate to them, but I can sort of empathize with them by saying that it's a very hard job. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Like, my, I mean, my, my daily routine is talking to parents because that's what I do for a lot of these programs. I've been talking to them. And the one common theme in the conversations is that, that of concern, because they're concerned about their children, about what's going to happen to them. And it's all about sort of building something that they can really give them a support system where they can learn more. And it's all, and I think it's very common to all the parents to be concerned about the children, but I think it's also very important to sort of have free and independent thought because at the end of the day, I remember like when we were also growing up, like my sister and I, and my parents moved quite a bit. So every couple of years, we used to be into a new school, thrown into like this pool of students who we did not know, we had no friends and we had to get on with it because that's what our lifestyle was. So a lot of it made it very independent thought. We had to sort of make our own decisions, sort of move ahead and be comfortable and adapt to that situation because it was very key for us to keep surviving into these multiple schools and things like that. So I think that independence of thought, although they're children, is very important for you know parents to let go. But I know that it's, it's just inherent naturally that the parents are going to be concerned about what their kids do, what they should provide them. There's so many different kind of com complex emotions. I think slowly parents are also realizing that it's a two-way conversation than how it used to be back in the day. It's a one-way conversation. This is what you do and this is what you should be doing versus it's a two-way conversation now that everyone's been discussing. This is what we do together as a team. So that's nice. Great. So Weber, you get this heterogeneous mix of people, students particularly, different uh, schools, different thought processes. What do you do to enable to bring out the homogeneity in them? How do you let the design thinking shape up? So over the years, it's actually, that's an interesting question. But what I was trying to say is that we love getting different kinds of people together. The heterogeneous mix is really what drives and makes the design thinking process that much more exciting, I would say. The more different perspectives, that means the more challenged you get by different perspectives and different ideas and different ways of thought. That is exactly what the design thinking process teaches you, is to uh, not make assumptions, but to allow to understand how other people think. And I think over the years, bringing together this heterogeneous mix of people, like you mentioned, is quite exciting because the good thing or the common thing in all of them is passion towards uh, creation. And I think what we end up, what we do, or what I guess, I think our role as Makers Asylum is pretty much help them ignite that passion a little bit towards the problem that they're trying to solve. And then after that, 90% of our work is done because after that, they ask the questions. And everything else is an open learning environment for them. Now they want to learn. And that's what's beautiful. Because if you think about it, once you find your passion, then life is an endless learning ride, which is waiting for you. And then you end up learning from everything. You end up learning from the bottle that's sitting next to you, 
or you end up learning from the chair or you end up learning from the tree or you end up learning from the person around you. So the point is that depending on whatever your passion is, once you find it or once you just sort of tickle it a little bit, it opens up a world of learning. And uh, that's what we do. Uh, I think uh, that's what our job is to help people uh, find that passion a little bit in the problem that they're trying to solve. That's a very interesting way you described it. It is like saying that someone would want to go to the Himalayas to find divinity and someone would find it just in opening or peeling up a banana. Pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the truth behind it, right? And that's what they tell you at the Himalayas as well, I believe, once you get there. <laughs> but what have been some of the standouts for you in getting that passion ignited? So a, a lot of very, very exciting different projects have happened over here. Let's take, for example, a long time back, we were building a satellite ground station. And none of us knew, knew how to build a satellite ground station. But we started and we were looking through some open source designs and we were working on this 3 printed simple installation. Of course, it's not that easy. Of course, there are different challenges in the way. But then once uh, you become passionate about it, we learned everything that was in there and we were able to put similarly, let's take another example of Khyati, I guess. She makes leather bags and leather notebooks. And once she found that, she's able to learn different skills like laser cutting or other things and be able to continue to explore that. Then there is the student recently who, was, who came to us for the program, I guess. He was trying to identify a problem and he identified a problem that he wanted to work with uh, the different able community. And he started working with his neighbor who is blind. And one of the simple problems that he observed that he has is that every time his neighbor is standing in front of him, the neighbor does not know that it's him that's standing in front. So he needs to ask somebody else and be like, who's standing in front of me? And uh, to figure out who's the person in front of him. And that's a very simple problem. And to be able to identify that and to observe that is beautiful. And he was able to figure that out as a part of the problem framing prospect. And then after that, then it's his passion. He picked up Raspberry Pi. He learned coding. He learned image recognition. He learned, uh, I don't know, stitching. And God knows what to be able to build a little cap for his neighbor to be able to wear, which includes image recognition software and a Raspberry Pi that just simply looks in front of at the person and inside his ears whispers to him who's standing in front of him. So that's just an example then there was this other group of guys, kids of talents, I would say, who we were working with. They came up, they wanted to build a game, a game similar to Pokemon Go, but they had a problem that kids uh, their age are not moving enough. So they wanted to do something exciting. And then they figured out an exciting area, which is strategy-based games that they're super excited about as a group. And they built a game, which is so fun that even I want to play and I'm totally down for it. What you got to do is, that you need to run around. So let's say if you're around Maker's Asylum and if you run around Maker's Asylum and you lap it, you hold the territory of Maker's Asylum depending on your speed and how many times you ran over it. So now let's say if you come around and you wanted to take over the territory of Maker's Asylum, you would have to run around it faster than me or more number of times than me to be able to hold that territory. Similarly, just imagine on like a simple Google map, you're able to see different, different territories owned by different people depending on how much they're running around those areas. And you can capture somebody else's territory by going and running around that area. The game theory, the game thought process, these guys didn't know how to make a game. They didn't know how to make it exciting. They just had a basic idea, but they figured out these things. Then they also learned programming, coding, making together an app and everything within three days and put it together. And that was uh, really, really beautiful to be able to see everything working and you being able to run around and actually owning territories. I mean, if I was supposed to teach these kids programming and how to make an app, I don't know how long it would have taken me. Seriously. If I was supposed to work with these other kids to teach them about the Raspberry Pi, to teach them programming, to teach them image recognition, all of these are complex things. Coding is complex. Image recognition is complex. Working with 3D printing, CAD modeling, all of these are complex and they take a lot of time and they're not that, I mean, especially when you start learning, depending where you're learning, they're not that fun to just sit in a class and watch the lecturer teaching you, this is how you do this. Instead, however, now that they had this project and they were super pumped about figuring this out towards seeing what the end result could be, we didn't have to do anything. 
they were learning. They were asking us the questions and it's so simple to answer them. So right. it was pretty straightforward. They are coming up with the problems and we're just guiding them that, hey, if you're looking for image recognition, this is where you look and let's go ahead and try and solve this. If you're looking at the Raspberry Pi element, this is the libraries. We can grab some of this stuff and we can put this together. So what I'm trying to say is that in all of these projects that we've done over the years, at least my role or our role as a team, it has been to be able to first identify and figure out what the problem is and what is the thing that we are trying to go towards and figure out that larger picture. Once you've done that, then the talents, the students, learning is just a straightforward thing after that. And they end up learning all of the elements of programming and everything in no time, because then it's exciting. They've opened up their minds to accept information. And it's very important to put people in that mindset of accepting information before you give them that information. What is it that you guys are doing to get that passion flamed up? What is that alchemy? What is that alchemy? We believe in them. Yeah, we believe in all of them that we work with. And I believe in each one of the students that I work with. And only that's when we start working with them. And when we start working with them, if you believe in them, then that's it. They have to do it. They, they are going to do it. There's no oh. other way around it. So it's really that intangible element which yeah. bring to convert their work into something tangible. Yeah. Fantastic. Web of 2014 was your start, I believe. Correct. 2013, 2014. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hindsight doesn't lie. And as you see it today, in 2014, what did you think? Where would Make of Asylum be in 2020? I don't have a very long vision. Many years back when we started Make of Asylum, it started in the back room of Ayanathra's office, the company that I was working for. And uh, we had a little 100 square foot space in the back room. And uh, we started by building furniture and tables and some fun DIY toys. And it was great. Then uh, they basically asked us to leave because obviously the space gets super uh, dirty and messy on a Monday. So we moved into a different garage. Then we moved into a design school. Then we moved multiple times. We moved like seven times in the process. I had never thought that we'd land up in Goa for one. I had never thought that it's uh, going to be a bigger physical space like this with these kind of tools. I never thought that we'll be working with students. What I'm trying to say is that I never thought these things for sure. I would have thought other things along the lines of, let's say, more tools, maybe more projects. Possibly, I was definitely thinking about definitely building a community of like-minded people and unlike-minded people who would come and share and make things. Definitely imagining a lot more tools. All of those things were definitely in my head but not the way that Makers Asylum is shaped up. I think what made this possible as well was, in a way, Makers Asylum is a design thinking process in action, I would say. And it's always evolving. It's always going around multiple times. And that's how it works. I mean, you keep iterating on your own thing and you test it and you learn and you figure out what works. We never started with a business model. We started as a foundation. And then we created a company and now we have a company and a foundation working together to create a social enterprise. Later on, people talked that it was a social enterprise, that it makes sense. It's a social enterprise. Is it profitable? Yeah, it's uh, profitable and that's a good thing. And every social enterprise should be profitable. That's the thought and that's what we also want it to be. Is it fun? Yes. Does it allow us to lead a good life? Yes. Uh, does it happen to be a space that you want to go to, yes. So I think all of those things sort of check in. So it's in the sense that it's a, it's a creative social enterprise that allows to create that mix. And all of those things were definitely things that I was imagining, but at the same time, things that I uh, grew with organically. Fantastic. No, I think that was where I was wanting to tickle you. So Webb, you said that you do not have a long vision. So... Is it somewhere fair to say that you are not very goal-oriented? So, so certain things, we are very goal-oriented. like And goals help you achieve things and challenge you. So, for example, when you talked about the M19 initiative, that's a very exciting example of a goal and that we put on ourselves that we thought was not possible. And we were able to, uh, we pushed ourselves to get to it. But there are certain things that I like to keep open-ended, which is life, for example and allow different things to also happen. So Makers Asylum is like life for me right now. 
and Richa being my wife and both of us starting it together and also an organization that we believe in. It is, it is a sort of, it is something which is evolving all the time. We do have goals within that, but at the same time that we allow it to structure and evolve in different ways and being flexible to that is also part of uh, the way I like to think because we're always learning from it. So, so we have internal smaller goals. So it helps to drive, but at the same time, having an open Openness towards thought is also very important. And there would have been probably certain projects which as a team you thought have immense potential, but they did not take off. Yeah. Why does that happen? What what goes wrong over there? I think there's, there's nothing wrong with the process, the projects as such, I would say. Sometimes it's about persistence and giving them the time to age and allow them to shape up. Sometimes the timing is not right. Sometimes the market is not right. Sometimes it's too early. All of those things happen. And that's uh, part of the learning process, right? Which you create something and uh, you realize that, hey, the audience for it is not there sometimes. Or you create something and you are too early for something like that. That's normal. And what have been some of the most notable moments in this journey without which you wouldn't be where you are today? Since I know of Makers Asylum as an outsider as well, because over the years I've been somebody who's been to the space. I've been to all the makers, all the spaces that, you know, when it started out of a garage in Bandra to going to another space in Bandra, then to Low Apparel inside a innovation school and things like that. I've seen all the spaces sort of grow up. So I think the one of the most notable things about Makers Asylum and its journey has been the community that has kept growing and kept giving the space so much love and energy that comes out of it that it's a very special place that that keeps just growing and growing with time. So I think that has been definitely one of the most exciting things as an outsider that I see and also now as a part of the team that's growing it, that the love and the adoration and the, the need of the space is something that everybody has always wanted but never thought that could be. And then when they come to the space, it's just like this, this like a kid in a candy factory that, oh my God, I can do so many things over here. There's a ownership to the space that comes in from people who use it and are part of the community. And the community is just so strong. And I think that's been the most notable thing about Makers Asylum, that it's just kept growing very organically. It's not like something that we know we do or we reach out to people. It's the people that sort of reach come and stay along and be part of that whole journey that we have. So I think that's been very exciting and that's still the way that we want to progress it because we want it to be a community of like-minded people that take ownership of the space, that value the space and grow it with us, just not only us as a team that is doing it. But apart from that, Webov can add his most notable journeys because his journey started way before I came into the picture, so he can tell us a little bit more about uh, the people, the things that sort of took took it forward every time. Yeah, and even if there was a leap of faith, was there fear sometimes? Oh yeah, definitely a lot of fear in multiple ways and different things. That's uh, also part of the process. And a lot of uncertainties, a lot of things that happened. But I think a few of the things that I would say that are very key was every time we move spaces, we learn something. Every time we lost people in the team, we learn something. And that's also happened. That is every time we, we failed on a project, we learn something. And every time we took up a project that we were not able to do the right kind of justice to it, we also learned something. So I think all of those little elements where we fucked up, we learned a lot from that were definitely key to making Makers Asylum where it is today. A lot of the good stuff as well, like Richa was talking about, like the community, definitely it was, that was one thing that kept us going because many a times that I would be having a downtime or not be, or like you said, there would be fear or other things. We would be able to stand up because of the people around us and the positive energies that we got. And that's, that's very, very important. And that's why uh, when they say that every business today should build a community, it makes sense because, I mean, but you need to define that community. The right sense of the word of the community is very, very important. So we have those people who are always with us no matter what. And it's beautiful to see that. 
people who uh, wanted to contribute to things and are there to support the journey of Makers Asylum, no matter what we do. So I think all of these elements have definitely led to a lot of learning. And I think there was nothing else better that I could have done either. So this was the only thing that we had to keep to continue going. So made sense. <laughs> Do you have any age limits for your students? No, I think uh, the person who's, I think the eldest people who have been to our space is about 60, 65. A lot of retired people come to us, by the way. Okay. So that's always a very, very honorable and a beautiful thing because we get to learn from them so much from their experience. And at the same time, they get to learn from us. And it's super exciting to have the retired engineers who worked in a factory or led companies or did business for so many years, even pilots who were engineers before come over here to refine that passion towards creating. And I think that's beautiful because, yeah, I think that's a very important side of us that we should always keep touch on. And it's nice to see them come to be able to find that again. Why I ask that? Because in school, we had this class called SUPW, Socially Useful Productive Work. And the only productive okay. work which we had was collecting all the wood from different places and converting it into furniture. And we all used to just hate that subject and that uh, class completely. But uh, as you said, these guys who have moved on from their corporate lives retired find refiring probably when they come to you so probably for the next class of carpentry my hands up for that <laughs> <laughs> please actually there's one going on right now and uh, maybe at some point towards the end which i can show you what's happening over there and there are people uh, again i think the eldest person in the class is about 40 45 years old yeah at the moment. yeah and the youngest person is uh, th 13 if i'm not mistaken so there's a nice uh, diversity to the mix as well one of them has flown down from Bangalore, another one has flown down from Bombay, and two are from here, and one, one is visiting. So two of them especially flew down. So it's kind of nice. It's beautiful to see that already coming together in Goa. And how long is this program for? We start with two days, and then you can opt to stay back for an extra four days to do level two and level three. But otherwise, level one is for two days. I'm definitely going to come over in one of the upcoming sessions for that. Please do. All right. So let me move to part three of our conversation, uh, which is about sustainability and capitalism. So your work is aligned with SDGs. For you, how has the idea of sustainability changed over the years? I think if you think about like a overall perspective of sustainability, I think it's been one, uh, a lot to do with uh, the kind of projects that we select that we want to do as well. There is, we look for like-minded organizations, who do think like we do in the way of, say, waste utilization, even the whole process of just understanding it from a perspective of not just product creation, but in the whole process of product development, where are you doing what? Are you wasting something? What are the kind of materials they're using? What are the kind of energy uh, production that we're doing? We do care about it in a very microscopic level as well, where we want to make sure that everything that we do is circular. If you're generating something that's been used to sort of upcycle into a different product and things like that. So the thought process has always been the same. I think there's a lot of focus now when you see in the world around sustainability. But I think when you think from a perspective of uh, product creation for us that has been in the last couple of years, We've always thought the elements to be very directed towards how we can make it work, but at the same time, how it can be sustainable. So that's been very true to the fabric of Makers Asylum, because that's the kind of culture and community that we belong to. And we've been trying to sort of create as well. And now over the years that we've also been teaching about sustainability and bringing people together to build awareness around that thought process, I think it's become even more integral to us because uh, now the, what we preach is what you practice is what we also you know try to do and we did the same thing even like during the m19 initiative uh, when we were making those shields inside our asylum the entire the production line ev everything was getting utilized again so all that we generated out of waste was again being used into packaging was again being used into doing other things so it was just zero waste inside our space which was so beautiful to see even at that time and this was happening in the spur of the moment when we had like so much chaos going on. But at the same time, inherently, we were doing that 
So when we look back at it, we were like, okay, wow, this is great because at least it's in our system. It's in our muscle memory that this is what we have to do because that's the way of life. And I don't think so. It's any it's any denying that we all, as individuals, when we start thinking about our own the way that we generate waste, we, the way we use the resources that we have, it's gonna be it's gonna be an impact that is created across the world because there were seven billion people, and all of us start thinking differently about the nature and the environment that we deal with. it's going to obviously have a substantial impact so i think that's very important i think it's just very engraved in our system so talking about the m19 project what was that moment of spark if i you were to ask me the moment of spark was uh, that webhav did not want to sit inside the house when things went into lockdown <laughs> and he's just a very fidgety person in general like you know, he can't sit inside the house and just don't do anything like he has to keep doing something So from from personal perspective, it was like okay, fine. We're just gonna like be at the asylum so that I can keep doing something. So I said that's great because it sort of takes away a little bit of my work of keeping him engaged. So I think it was more that from a personal perspective. But I think what we really thought was that when we have access to something so beautiful in terms of the kind of space that we have and the kind of people that we know, why just sit at home and not do anything when we can actually contribute at the time of crisis? So I think that was definitely a key thing that, as a team, we all thought about, and we said, "Okay, fine, let's just be here, and we'll keep doing something, and then we will see what happens." But Webber, you can tell your perspective as well. <laughs> I would contradict that a tiny bit. I think that thought process to be able to do something for the lot good and everything maybe came much later. That yeah. wasn't the thought process, at least at the beginning. The thought process at the beginning was, "Guys, it's an apocalyptic time. The world is coming to an end." let's be around the tools and do something to survive the best place to survive is going to be the asylum at least we have all the weapons we need to be able to go the longest <laughs> uh, so i think that was the first thing that was coming to the head and then uh, like exactly what happened so the pandemic hit we decided to s- stay back at the asylum and immediately we started working on a few different ideas as to what we can do and the first thing was shields and the next thing that we did when we hit upon that we tried to make some prototypes and started calling some people some key people like anul who is the co-founder and others and a few others to come down and uh, do stuff and then automatically just in no time everyone started assembling and we started figuring things out from there so we had we started with about three people at the asylum and then we were all like over 20 and then by the end of it we were over 300 in uh 49 down cities and villages so it was more like voltrons assemble avengers assemble let's do something <laughs> that's that's really a powerful butterfly effect isn't it yeah it was quite exciting to be honest it was uh, quite scary every day somebody would wake up and be like oh, holy fuck what's happening is one of us going to fall sick or uh, we were all of us were laid up in uh, masks and shields ourselves throughout we were wearing the shields for multiple reasons one we were product testing so we knew exactly what was wrong with the shield before we gave it out and we knew that the doctors had to wear it for over 8 hours that means that they had to be comfortable and so we were making design improvements on the fly because we were using them and working with hospitals to be able to figure that out and even today our shields are rated over on amazon as one of the more comfortable ones which is great and second we were thinking about reusability so we were thinking about ways in which we only waste what's important so we made them in a way that you were able to replace the parts which had to be bio waste versus which did not and which should be sanitized we thought about that too and another reason why our shields today are also known as the most eco friendly by hindustan times and various other publishers then the other part was to make them in a way that was very very resource constrained because we didn't have anything we hardly had materials true the entire country was in a lockdown and uh, we hardly had any access to things so it was a scary time and a very uncertain time just like it was for everyone else but it was a opportunity to be able to think and do something which was exciting and this is where a goal really helped us we started with a goal of 1000 we kept we reached the goal of 1000 very quickly so we changed the goal to 10000 then we were very fast coming towards 10000 so we changed the goal to 1 lakh and then we changed the goal to 1 million 
And after that, we were like, hell no, no more goals. We're done with goals. <laughs> I'm going home after this. And I needed a quarantine after that. Not because of anything else, but more like just needed some sleep. <laughs> yeah. And and how about the testing of these uh, shields? Didn't you require government approval and stuff for that? Yeah, that was a really fun part, a regulation-free part, which uh, nobody had any clue, including the government, I believe. <laughs> so it was a big mess. We were trying to push after them to for regulatory approvals and everything, but nobody seemed to have a clue how things get regulated in India. And eventually they just said that they don't need regulation. Then everyone started running after state regulation, which uh, is an international European regulation where we were offered CE certificates at home for 10,000 rupees without even testing <laughs> uh, from various organizations. And we decided, no, this is not how testing works in the country. And this is not how regulations should work. Like somebody said, okay, we'll give you CE certifications for 10,000. Somebody said 12,000. Somebody said 14,000. I was like, seriously, this is like a marketing bid going on towards what I want the regulatory certifications to be at. But there are regulatory authorities that are supposed to regulate these things internationally and i think they were all very very overwhelmed with the demand and the supply of these things as well so they were all overworked so nobody knew what was going on and i think that is one reason why i believe that in the larger scheme of things makerspaces and regulatory authorities across the world should be working together innovation arms should be working with regulatory authorities so that there is a dialogue rather than just closure to doors. And this wasn't just us, this was faced internationally by the entire Maker community. So when I say that, while we were doing this in Maker's Asylum, the entire world, the Maker spaces were active and doing something or the other. And that was the most beautiful part that we learned afterwards is that it wasn't just us doing this stuff in India, the entire world, the makers, every single one of the maker communities in the world thought alike. They saw the virus, they saw what was going on, and they all got to work, whether it be at their maker spaces or at home, wherever it was possible, they got to work. They used all their tools and everything possible to be able to look at the problem and find a solution to it and start making them and making themselves useful in this time and uh, not do nothing. This wasn't just us, by the way. This was the entire maker community in the world. Do you think that after this, there has been a change from the government stand? There is better collaboration? Globally, things are happening. So in the United States, one of the makers, somebody who is really pro on the maker culture is elected as one of the spokesperson at the White House now. And then there is quite a few other things that we've been hearing that have been happening. We as makers have also created a global network, which is easier and faster to disseminate information, especially at times of crisis and others, to be able to share ideas and to be able to collaborate much faster. The networks have become stronger from the government side, at least in India. I don't think we were able to push too much or learn too much. At the same time, it requires efforts from our side, from their side. They were pretty busy, I guess, the government. But I think there needs to be more exchange of thought and more exchange of ideas and more open communication. Right now, I feel like there is a divide between the government and the common man. And that needs to uh, reduce, and especially between the makerspaces and them. I was doing this podcast with a guy called Zach, who started a coding community in the United States. He dropped out of college and he started... Oh, nice. And he was saying that it is his thought, and I think you say the same thing in some ways, and I would agree that makers and coders, they need to be in all places where decisions are being made or where future is being directed. Yeah. And he said that had that been the situation, the coronavirus problem could have been tackled in much better ways than it has typically been by the politics and bureaucracy. Oh, sure. I think, yeah, the government itself has like been funding so many of these labs like tinker spaces and everything we've tried to work with them multiple times they they've invited us to various advisory meetings is that but I, I don't know if they really have that conversation in a two-way street it's more like they have agendas and they want to push that but in the sense if there was a true two-way conversation we had over a thousand tinkering labs in this country just imagine the strength of that to be able to create what we did we did that with maybe out of the 42 city towns and villages that we were able to ignite and bring part of this. We did not even know more than 10 of them. And some of them, maybe like half of them, at least 20 out of the 42 weren't even labs or had access to a makerspace. 
but the government had access to over 1000 such tinkering labs plus other facilities like excellent centers and other things they had access to so much and i believe that if it was done in the right possible way to disseminate the information as to how to fight or at the same time how to use their resources with the right kind of backing it, it would have been great and that's exactly what we were doing we made videos not just to explain how to use the process to be able to create shields but we also made videos that each and every one of us used to be able to figure out how to keep our labs safe and how do we figure this out all of this was open information we made videos we made documentaries we well, well like papers while we were making our shields at night at whatever time so that while the other labs and other people were joining us because they wanted to contribute they needed to be safe at this time as well because it is uh important to be safe each one of us at our lab were behaving or at least uh the way we were able to be safe in that environment was that we all treated each other that all of us are carriers of the virus and how do we not just make sure that it goes from one person to another we had three doctors who were volunteering to make the shields with us from different different walks of life one of them was a senior surgeon one of them was a child psychiatrist one of them was a neuropsychologist so we had a nice mix of people and they were able to put some protocols into the space that allowed us to be more careful we did not share the same plate we did not eat from the same spoon not even the cups we had our designated tables so we we were following a strict protocol which allowed us to do what we did in a safe manner over that time while mumbai was speaking and i would be proud to say that the virus did not spread inside the space one of us did contract the virus but at the same time it did not spread it was able to be controlled and turned off i mean in the sense that it was taken out but it did not spread to all of the 25 people living and working at the asylum at that time which is a testament to the fact that yes there were dangers and safety measures that were very important but if you were able to follow certain things and which i think everyone was we were able to protect the labs but at the same time get the output that was important yes it also started a few years back something called the atal innovation labs yes any that's what i was talking about the yeah. thousand of them all right all right and the fact that at that crucial time they couldn't leverage all of that yes they couldn't leverage all that but that's fair i mean they're inside schools they have a different purpose than this but yeah they weren't able to leverage that and uh, well the labs don't have a community the labs uh, have a very specific thought process and they are also goal and target oriented the labs yeah which are uh, yeah <laughs> that's where it become kind of uh, self defeating problem enough said yeah. <laughs> so as design thinkers as sustainable design thinkers you know what are some of the businesses you guys admire who achieve value for shareholders but achieve it sustainably and this whole culture with them is inside out i'm thinking about it like at a small scale i think there are a lot of small businesses that are social enterprises and sort of really involve uh, community at the heart of it i think there's uh, definitely a lot that's happening in the space of textiles and working with artisans in the country so there are a lot of businesses that are doing that where they're actually this fair wage there is uh, recognition to these artisans this very transparent way of functioning although they retail their products but like where it's sourced from what is where the textile and the fabric is coming from so i think a lot of sustainable fashion is something that is also growing now and people are realizing that fast fashion is something that obviously is killing a lot of wagers and daily wagers who work on this in different parts of the world so i think sustainable and slow fashion is something that a lot of people are moving to and i think there are a bunch of examples of different brands that do great work one of our friends she runs something called okhai which is again a sustainable fashion brand but again she works with actual real artisans in different parts of the country and i think she's doing some great fantastic work and the products are great the quality is great and even the people who are working on it them these artisans and the work that they're doing so that's one example that definitely comes to my mind but i think there are multiple social enterprises that are coming out in the country now that have community at the heart of it and whatever that they make and run as a business they are giving it back to the community from that perspective helping or education or multiple other things traditionally all businesses in the country like the big ones that run 
of course they are large businesses and and of course at the end of the day the bottom line and the top line are very important to them so the businesses like those will always be like that but i think because of regulations around sustainability reporting and things like that there are some changes in the way that they think about things but that's a very small percentage of these traditional businesses that are moving towards sustainability it's not been the at the heart of it from the beginning the business has been at the heart of it i can't comment a lot on that but hopefully soon you know people will start realizing and sort of really thinking about the social aspect of the business and what it drives where is the value chain how does it affect everything that you do so all of that is something that i i think it's uh, quite a long way to sort of go from that perspective of the much larger businesses that are there in our country for sure but yeah I'll pass it on to Webhav if he has something to add over there. No, I think that's great. I completely agree. There's some very, very exciting stuff that's happening in the industry right now. There's Gravity Inc. that's creating stuff out of pollution. Then there is quite a few solar panel startups that are really exciting enterprises and startups that are coming out with their thought and with their mindsets in the right places. And I mean, that's just like any business or any other uh, company. it doesn't matter what the it's about the people at the end of the day or behind them and what their thought processes are so yes yes i think i think there are a lot of small businesses but i think at the heart of it for all of us to have sustainability make a big impact there there are terms like capitalism and conscious capitalism so so i don't know whether we need two terms i mean why do we need to get reminded that capitalism has to be conscious yeah from that point of view i often see that there is even because of these regulations and uh, stuff there is one external facade and then there is something which is going on inside and things look very beautiful on the outside but inside they aren't so i think we all will have to somewhere become extremely conscious of this and uh, probably for a few years forget about bottom lines forget about profitability and just get it all right if we really have to make an impact yeah yeah i'm sorry for maybe they were divulging on that a little bit anything you guys would like to tell your younger selves i will definitely tell myself that that one can think beyond a certain way of thought process that the society around you tells uh, you to do mm. so i will definitely tell my younger self to even be more confident uh, about the choices and the gut feeling that even if you have as a young person because it definitely is important to sort of really go with it even if you don't know a lot that is happening but at the same time some things are really that comes and drive you from within and it's important to stick to it and move ahead and don't question it because it's coming from a place of a place of inner thought and inner passion so let it flow so maybe that is something that i could possibly tell my younger self i would tell myself to start earlier because what every time that i think i would go back and look at a project that i didn't start i would go and tell myself to start because unless you start making something or unless you actually start doing it you feel unqualified to do it and that's just normal but when you start making something or when you start breaking something you automatically start feeling more qualified to do it and uh, and you build the confidence to be able to create you build the confidence to be able to go in down that right and uh, that's very important so the only way to be able to get that confidence or to be able to get be comfortable with making is to start so the sooner the better let me ask you a final question and uh, maybe some final words after that from you are you guys misunderstood have make of asylum to the society to the government yeah i mean uh, sometimes it does happen that we get misunderstood in different ways but more from not an element of saying that we're doing something bad or anything but more from what the hell are these guys doing i mean first of all the name is misunderstood a lot because there's an asylum in the name everyone thinks it's a mental asylum <laughs> and where we're heading yes then my parents still don't understand what we do so if that's considered misunderstanding then that would be another one so saying that yes people don't understand what we do that's normal and i think i'm over it so saying that we misunderstood would be one part of it but yeah richa any thoughts from you i think it happens most people who are doing something very unique and have a different kind of a vision about the way that they think about the current world scenario where their idea fits in and what you know others around you sort of think about it so i think it's something that we've also been dealing with but i think there are enough and more people now who understand this 
So which is a great journey of the last seven, eight years where people have come to the understanding of these, why do you need a space like this? What is the importance of it in on a grassroots level? And is there a need of more spaces like this? Yes, a lot of people have come to that realization. And I think it's a process of self-realization of this one. At least for our country, I can speak. I think there is a lot of adversity in our country. There's a lot of resource crunch in our country. There's a lot of problems in India. But the best part about the country is that we know how to find solutions. And I think our space is a very, how do I say, it's a quintessential space where you can find solutions. And I think it will definitely resonate slowly but steadily when we move further in our journey. If there anything else you guys would like to share or anything which you want to say here? Start making for everyone that's out there. It's uh, super fun. And uh, do it together. The more people that you share making with, the more fun it gets. And all that it takes to start something like a maker's asylum is building a table with a bunch of friends. So go for it. <laughs> I take that very seriously myself and I'll be soon there. Well, I think it was it was a real treat to talk to two of you guys and I think it was very nice that both of you could make it together. I'm currently reading this book. It is called Chase, Chance and Creativity. And nice. I have something to read to both of you from this and consider these also as my very good wishes for Maker's Asylum. And this is uh, these are actually words by a scientist called Jacob Bronowski. And this is what it reads like. Whether our work is art or science or the daily work of society, it is only the form in which we explore our experience which is different. The need to explore remains the same. This is why, at bottom, the society of scientists is more important than their discoveries. What science has to teach us here is not its techniques, but its spirit. The irresistible needs to explore. And I think this is what nice. is the definition of Maker's Asylum. Thank you so much. Thank guys. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harsh. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a beautiful line. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.